Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. It is that indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that guarantees our position as God's children, the presence of Christ in us, the one who helps us and sustains us through this life. And uh, we'll get to talk more about that as we work our way through the sermon today. Again, Acts chapter 18, if you don't have your Bible open yet to that passage, you can go ahead and open there. And uh, as we think about the Spirit's presence in us and how that makes us part of the body of Christ today and the, the family of God, it reminds us that we are to be uh, participating in the life of the church, not just consuming the life of the church. Uh, Mother's Day, we, we think of mothers as providers, right? Uh, they, they provide for their families and for their children, making sure everyone has food to eat and a bed to sleep in and caring for the details, right? Uh, well, I think if we think of mothers as providers, then that means children are consumers. Is that fair to say? Uh, children are consumers. And I, I wonder, I don't even know that we ever fully grow out of that consuming stage. In fact, if we were to speak in economic terms, the public in general is often referred to as consumers, right? Why? Because we eat and we shop and we buy. And often in life, we're just always thinking of, well, what else do I need? And do I have enough? And do we need to buy more of that? And uh, inevitably, when I'm in the grocery store, uh, Carrie would smile at this. I think she's in the twos and threes today. But at any rate, inevitably, when I'm in the grocery store picking something up for our family, I come home with a few extra things, right? Things that I went into the store not realizing I needed. uh, But walking around the store, you realize, you know, I think we're out of cinnamon rolls, and so maybe we should pick up some more of those. And uh, suddenly I'm home with a few extra things. Carrie's very good about sticking to her list, on the other hand. We're consumers. We're consumers. And this kind of thinking can actually creep into the way we view church, right? We begin to come to church, and we think about it in terms of, am I being fed? Are my needs being met? Are things happening the way I like them? Or do I need to begin shopping for something else? What we are reminded of in today's passage is that church is something where we are a family. We're not just consumers. Now, don't misunderstand me. God does intend for us to grow, for us to be fed, for our needs to be met through the church. But we actually end up getting it backwards if we make our attendance about us. Right? If we walk into the building thinking to ourselves, all right, am I going to be fed today? Will somebody encourage me? How many people will say hi to me? And will I be, will I be encouraged and my needs be met today? We'll find ourselves often disappointed. But if we go into the church the way God intends us to, Remembering that, well, if I've trusted in Christ as Savior, I have God's Spirit. I'm here to worship God and to encourage others as we do that, as we give, as we serve, as we participate. We find that God actually meets our needs. And it's that freedom of self-forgetfulness that the very gospel calls us to every Sunday when we gather. And so we're going to think about that as we work through today's text, not just consuming, but being participants 
in the body of Christ. So that would be our theme today, working through this text. God wants you to participate in the growth of the church. And He's even equipped you to participate in the growth of the church. As we work through this text, we're going to notice some things that are priorities to God. Some things that are important and necessary as we seek to participate in the church. And they will come to the surface as we work through this text and we see what's important in the body of Christ, in the family of God. We're also going to notice as we work through this, the variety of people that God uses. I've mentioned this already this morning, but we'll see the Apostle Paul being used by God. We'll see Apollos, who had his own unique gifts and strengths. We'll see Aquila and Priscilla, who had their role to play as well. God sovereignly working through each of them to build up the body of Christ. So the question lingers for us, how then do you and I participate in the growth of the church? What does this look like for us? How do we engage in the life that God has given to the body of Christ? Number one, we're going to see this. It's important that we devote ourselves to Him and His will. God's priority here is that we serve Him. And that's not selfish of God. Uh, That's not, you know, wrong of God to do that. In fact, it's right of God to do that. He is the glorious one. He's the holy one. And it was through His Son that He purchased the church and saved us out of our sin and called us to be a special people for the glory of His name. And so we succeed. We do well in the growth of the body as we devote ourselves to Him. We're going to see that specifically in the life of the Apostle Paul in verses 18 through 23. There are some interesting things that happen here, but the steady theme through these verses is Paul's devotion to the Lord's will. Just notice a few things that occur in these verses. Verse 18, Paul remains a good while there in, do you remember where he is? Corinth. He's there in Corinth. And he was at least there a year and a half. We don't know exactly how long he stayed, but uh, back in verse 11 of chapter 18, we're told it was at least a year and a half. Then he leaves the brethren there and sails for Syria. He's heading back east. Syria was the region in which his sending church, uh, Antioch, was located. You may remember that. They sent him out on this missionary journey, so it's likely he's heading back to Antioch to report to his sending church. Well, on his way out of Corinth, he stops at the town of Sancria, which is just five miles away from Corinth. In fact, uh, many would even lump it in with Corinth and just call it the port region of Corinth. It sat right on the water. So if you were sailing out of Corinth, you went through Sancria. And so I think I have a map uh, that highlights this here. So here's Corinth and Sancria right close to each other. And this is where Paul would have sailed from. Uh, and as we'll learn later, he goes to uh, Ephesus next. So Paul gets ready to leave, and we're told in verse 18 that he takes a vow. Now here's something a little curious. What's going on here? Paul has his hair cut because he had taken a vow. Now this doesn't mean that you have to make a promise every time you get your hair cut or anything like that. Uh, We don't know exactly what happened in Paul's life here. There are vows referred to in Scripture. In fact, one common one from the Old Testament is what's called a Nazarite vow. You may remember this in the character Samson. 
right, who was not supposed to cut his hair. So during the time of the Nazarite vow, you would let your hair grow, and you wouldn't cut it until the vow was done. And you remember Samson's story. That's why he lost his power. He had cut his hair. Uh, and so that ended that relationship of the vow and the power that he had from God. So it may be that, that Paul had taken some Nazarite vow and it's now ended and so he cuts his hair. Uh, sometimes people, when they started a vow, shaved their, their hair off. Again, we, this is all speculation. We really don't know exactly what Paul's doing here. But what is clear is this. Vows were commitment to the Lord. Paul is recommitting himself, dedicating himself to service to the Lord. This was intentional. In fact, vows were taken very seriously. You might remember in the book of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom there is that you don't make a vow unless you are going to fulfill it. Solomon's wisdom in Ecclesiastes actually says it's better not to take a vow than to take one and not fulfill it. So Paul was serious here about his devotion and commitment to the Lord. And that's what is clear about this vow. So he continues on in verse 19 to Ephesus and uh, leaves uh, Aquila and Priscilla there. They're going to stay in Ephesus and help that church grow. But he himself goes to the synagogue and reasons with the Jews. Verse 20, the Jews actually ask him to stay longer. This is a, a different reception than he's ever received. Normally, he goes to the synagogue and preaches and teaches and reasons. And what happens within a short amount of time? Some kind of persecution rises up, right? And they, they reject him and they send him off. A few get saved, but the rest of them kind of persecute him. Well, here, they want him to stay longer. Just imagine the attraction of that. The, these people want you to keep teaching them. How tempting would it have been for the Apostle Paul to say, okay, I'll stay here. But instead, notice what he says, verse 21. He takes leave of them, saying, it must by all means keep this feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you again, God willing. And he sails from Ephesus. He's devoted to following the Lord's will. And in this case, he was committed to getting back to Jerusalem to worship for a feast, to be a part of worshiping God there in Jerusalem. Now he says, I'd like to return, but notice even there he says, God willing. He's committed. Wherever he goes, whatever he does, it's not about whether the people want him. It's not about whether they ask him to stay. Paul is committed to doing the will of God. He says, Lord willing, I can come back and teach you some more. And so he sails from Ephesus, and we learn in verse 21 that he sails from Ephesus and goes uh, across a section of the Mediterranean Sea and lands down here in Caesarea. And this is uh, back into the Palestine area. There's the Sea of Galilee up here and the, the Dead Sea down here. And so he lands at Caesarea back in Palestine, travels, uh, well, the text says he travels up to Jerusalem because it was uphill to Jerusalem, even though it was south. Uh, and so we learn that in verse 22. He landed at Caesarea and he'd gone up and greeted the church, referring to the church in Jerusalem. He apparently kept his feast there, probably Passover. And then he heads north, or as the text tells us, down, because it's downhill, up to the city of Antioch. And so verse 22 tells us he went down to Antioch, downhill all the way up here to his sending church in Antioch. So there's a little picture of Paul's travels. Uh, a lot happens in verses 21, 22, and 23. 
But all that travel is not the emphasis. I think the emphasis is Paul's devotion to the Lord. Because already in verse 23, the Apostle Paul is ready to depart again. And without much uh, celebration, verse 23 is the start of what will be a third missionary journey. Paul heads out from Antioch, and as you can see on the map, he kind of heads north and west into these areas, Galatia and Phrygia, where he had been before. This is Pisidian Antioch. You may remember that name, uh, a town there where Paul had been before. And he's going to churches where he had been before, encouraging them and strengthening them, as the end of verse 23 tells us. So Paul is devoted to God and His will, ready to serve. This isn't about popularity. It isn't about whether they receive Him or reject Him. He's moving here and there, doing what the Lord wants him to do, and even through a vow, recommitting himself to the Lord. This is crucial for us as we participate in the life of the church. It must be about Him. It's not about our popularity or about what we want or meeting our wills or our desires. To participate in the growth of the church, we must devote ourselves to Him and His will. Many of you know I coached soccer for uh, about nine years or so and uh, at the collegiate level and enjoyed doing that. I was the assistant coach, and so I cared for a number of matters on the team. Uh, but as a coach, it was always interesting to see how different players interacted with the coach. Right, so the head coach and I would sit down and chat about you know, what, uh, what formation would work best for us and what our tactics would be, and we'd have all these plans drawn up. And through the process of tryouts and practices, we'd get to know the different strengths and weaknesses of the different players, and so we'd begin to determine in our minds, yeah, you know, I think this guy needs to be on defense, and he'd be better on offense, and he's probably more of a midfield player, and so we'd start to think through different positions. And we'd have different instructions for the players. And it was interesting to see how different players responded. There were some who had their own goals in mind, right? They were on the team because they wanted to play this position and they wanted to score this many goals. And so they'd be the ones who'd come to the coaches and say things like, Coach, I want to play forward, right? That's where I want to play. Can you put me in at forward? And, uh, you know, you're kind of going, well, I probably could, but I don't think it's best for the team. I think you fit better at midfield. Now, there were other players who had gotten it by that point in life. They'd come to the coaches and say things like, coach, put me where you need me. I'll play wherever. No big deal. Like, now that I can work with. They'll fit into the philosophy of the team, whereas the guy we put at midfield who wanted to play forward would find himself always up with the forwards. Get back with the midfielders, right? We told you to play there, and he kind of just did his own thing. He wasn't coachable. See, when we participate in the life of a team like this, in the life of a family, it's not about each of our own wills. And so many times in life, we, we treat it this way, right? We, we make our plans, we make our determinations, we kind of come to the Lord and say, okay, God, put me in it forward. Here's the plan I've come up with. This is where I think I'll be best. Is this okay with you? And we just kind of check it out with God. But this is all about Him and His glory, And so the perspective we ought to have in the life of the church is, Lord, use me however you want. Whatever you have. Put me on the bench. I'll be the water boy. You name it. (laughs) However you want, Lord. 
Devotion to Him and His will is one of the ways that we participate and thrive in the life of the church. It's not about us. We're not consumers, we're worshipers. We've been designed to worship and obey the Lord. This is how we thrive. Not kings of our own little worlds, but rather worshipers of the true King. This is why our church services, Lord willing, are designed to reflect what God has told us to do. It's why in our worship service we seek to do those things that God has commanded, preaching the Word, praying, reading the Word, singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. These are the things God has told us to do, and we gather for Him. And so we do what He's told us to do. Lord willing, decisions in the life of the church are made to please the Lord, that it would be all about Him. And it's so easy as we look at the future of our own congregation for our own little preferences and desires to creep in. Our consumer mentality can begin to grasp for the things that we want. And again, it's good and healthy to share opinions, but in all of it, are we devoted to the will of God, to pleasing Him? Because this is a gathering of His people. This helps us to conquer fear of man. Church can easily become about what people think of me. Maybe you've caught yourself, like me, thinking things like this. Well, why didn't that person greet me today? Why did they have that angry look on their face? No one noticed my outfit. Why didn't anyone sit by me? I really didn't like the songs today. I hope no one noticed that I'm struggling today. If people knew what I was really like, what would they think? But you see, the gospel, the very means by which God made us a people for Himself, frees us from that thinking because the gospel guarantees that the God who knew every detail about us, everything we have done and will do, chose to love us by sending His Son to die in our place and rise again. So when we come to church, we come not trying to pretend we have some righteousness. We come acknowledging freely that God knew my mess and He loved me. This frees us from any form of false pretense or self-righteousness because we're confident in what God thinks of us. I know He loves me. And whatever I struggled with this week, He still loves me. And I'm here to worship Him for His love for me. Aren't you thankful for the gospel that frees us from our self-perspectives and allows us to just be loved by God and therefore to love others? It's wonderful. See, church is about our devotion to Him and His will. We ask that question, hopefully, often in our lives. If the Lord wills, I will do this or that. As we continue in the text, we're going to notice number two today, that we are to disciple one another in gospel truth. The priority we see here is God's priority of gospel accuracy. You see, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, salvation is by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's information involved in true salvation, gospel information. And so a priority of God's, I believe, is gospel accuracy. That we're clear about what we mean when we talk about the gospel. And we'll see this in these verses. 
here we meet a man named Apollos. Verse 24 tells us that Apollos was born in Alexandria. That's a city down in Egypt. Though he was born in Alexandria, he was a Jew. And so there was a, some kind of Jewish population down there. He had grown up a Jew and understood the Old Testament. Alexandria is also known for its huge library and its education. And Apollos is no exception. He's well-educated. In fact, we're told uh, in verses 24 and in 25 that he was eloquent. That word actually means well-educated, good with words. And so Apollos was learned. Not only was he learned generally, but he knew the Scriptures. What a phrase to be used of someone, mighty in the Scriptures. Oh, I... May the Lord someday say that of us, right? Mighty in the Scriptures, to know the Word so well. Apollos knew the Old Testament Scriptures. Of course, at this point, the New Testament was not written down and collected, so he didn't have that, but he knew the Old Testament well. And he was fervent in spirit. That phrase means he's, he's passionate, right? He was excited about the Old Testament, <laughs> Another cool trait for Apollos here, he's, he's a preacher, he's ready to share and talk and debate. And verse 25 even says, he taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he only knew the baptism of John. The things of the Lord in the book of Acts, the word Lord is used most consistently to refer to the Lord Jesus. And so I do think he knows about Jesus. But he only knows as much as the baptism of John. And what, these, what this phrase means us is that as much as Apollos knew about Jesus through the baptism of John, he taught accurately. But he didn't know everything there was to know about the Lord Jesus and what he had done. So we have to think back here to remember what the baptism of John was. John the Baptist preceded the Lord Jesus, right? He was prophesied in the Old Testament as the one who would call out to the people, prepare the way for the Lord. He would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And he baptized people down under the water and up again as a baptism of repentance. And you know what the word repentance means. It means turning away and specifically turning away from sin, turning away from the way they had lived before and ready to follow the Messiah. It was really good stuff. John was calling them to turn away from their sin and to follow the Messiah. And John the Baptist even pointed to Jesus specifically. You remember that great passage in the Gospel of John that we studied not that long ago when he points to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But there was information that John the Baptist didn't have yet. John the Baptist didn't fully understand that what would happen with Jesus' death and resurrection and the sending of the Spirit. He did preach that this Jesus, this coming one, would baptize them in the Spirit, different than the baptism of repentance. But he didn't have all the details, and so too with Apollos. So Apollos is speaking boldly in the synagogue to the Jews, preaching Jesus as Messiah from the Old Testament, but it's not quite accurate. It's not enough. And so Aquila and Priscilla, verse 26, pull him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. Again, we're speculating a little bit here, but based on what John the Baptist would have taught, I think it's likely that they unfold to Apollos the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that this baptism of the Spirit that John talked about coming now has come. And that those who trust in the death and resurrection of Christ as Savior receive forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of God, 
and the indwelling Holy Spirit. <gasps> Whoa! So Apollos learns these beautiful truths. And I think he goes from what you could call as maybe an Old Testament saint, one who believed in Messiah of the Old Testament, to now a true New Testament saint, a true believer, one born again by faith in the crucified and risen Savior through the gospel witness of Aquila and Priscilla. And so they teach him, and notice the response, verses 27 and 28. He wants to keep preaching. He wants to go out and share further the good news. And so uh, he wants to go to Corinth. And we, we were just there, but just so you remember, uh, this means Apollos wants to sail from Ephesus back across to Corinth here, where Aquila and Priscilla came from. They're familiar there, and so they actually send a letter to the believers in Corinth saying, receive him, he gets it, he understands the gospel now. And indeed, as he goes, he encourages those who believe through grace. The end of verse 27, Apollos gets it. It was the grace of God that saved him by faith. So Apollos encourages the believers in Corinth. God uses Apollos to build the church. God uses Aquila and Priscilla to build the church. They pull him aside and instruct him and help him, and he learns and grows as a result, and the church is encouraged through these believers. I love it. They're discipling each other in gospel truth. We, we see this all the time in life, right? Discipling one another in various ways. Um, we had the opportunity yesterday, uh, Friday evening into Saturday, to uh, watch our nephews and our niece, um, Carrie's sister and her family, they celebrated their anniversary, and so we watched the kids so they could have a, have a good time. And, uh, you know, we have them in our home, and we're, we're having fun with them, and uh, tried to do all sorts of fun activities, played pickleball together, right, took them to Jester Park, had, had a great time. And even as we're with them, we're noticing the way their parents have taught them and trained them and discipled them. And, and uh, you know, Carrie and I are not used to that. And so uh, one thing that came up in the home was, uh, you know, with five more in the house, uh, it's a little noisier around the house, right? Maybe you've experienced that if you have children. I mean, Carrie's pretty noisy, but um, <laughs> with five more, no, I'm, I'm teasing. She's not. I'm the noisy one, but... And so we're in the house doing different things, playing games and having fun. And, you know, I kept hearing these noises, you know, this like boom, thud, you know, and like, what was that? And so, you know, I rush upstairs. Is everybody okay? You know, who's, who's broken and what happened? And, you know, all of this and everything was fine, right? And, uh, and so I come back downstairs and get going on something else. And then another noise. Oh, boy, what happened this time? Right? Go check on it. Well, it's interesting, when Kyle and Christy arrived at the house, uh, they had gotten done with their fun time, and so they were just kind of enjoying some fellowship with us, and the kids were around the house playing some more, and the noises continued to happen, and I noticed uh, Christy, the, the mother of these five, and the way she handled the noises, and it was, it was incredible. She, like, knew exactly what to listen for, so 90% of the noises, there was no response from either Kyle or Christy. Because they had like, their ears had been so tuned to the types of noises, like, oh yeah, that's just a thump of something, nothing's wrong, you know. But the certain kind of cry that would come from the mouth of one of their children, and it was like, ah, we need to go to this one. I was like, how do you know these things? It's just incredible. 
And so there she was, you know, talking her children through different things, discipling them, even through the stuff of life, right? Crying over a toy that had been taken or, you know, whatever it was. I watched mom disciple the kids, and I was discipled in some ways myself, learning how to recognize different sounds and so on and so forth. This kind of discipleship happens a lot. Training as we learn from others in the church Aren't you thankful for the opportunity to disciple one another, specifically in gospel truth? God has given us this family so we can help one another follow Jesus. That's what discipleship is. It means to follow after Christ. And He's given us brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers here in the body of Christ to help us accurately follow the Lord Jesus. And that begins most crucially with gospel truth, that you and I are encouraging one another with the truths of the gospel. It all begins there, that we have a Savior who knew our sin perfectly, chose to, in love, obey His Father and die in our place, rising again from the grave, conquering our sin and death, offering salvation, giving us forgiveness and righteousness and His Spirit So that we have all we need to say no to sin and yes to God and live the Christian life and help one another to do the same. Discipling each other in gospel truth. This is a crucial role in the church and God uses all types to do it. Sometimes we think we we must be like Apollos and be eloquent in words and mighty in the scriptures in order to disciple, but actually he was the one who needed help from Aquila and Priscilla. And they, just two church members, they're not apostles, they're not sent out to be missionaries or anything. They They work as tent makers. They pull him aside and help him along in his faith. Isn't the church a beautiful thing? And if we've believed in Jesus, that means we have God's Spirit and God's Word, which means we all are equipped to disciple one another and to help each other along. And that we have God's help for the humility we need, like Apollos, to listen to the encouraging words of our brothers and sisters in Christ that help to align us better with the way of God more accurately. So I wonder... Do we know the gospel? Not just believing in God, not just believing in Jesus, not just believing in Jesus as Messiah. Certainly Apollos believed that, but that wasn't enough. Specifically believing in the substitutionary death and saving resurrection of Jesus Christ. Justification by faith. This is the gospel message. Do we know it? Do we understand it? Are we discipling one another in the gospel? encouraging one another, growing with one another. This leads us to the opening verses of chapter 19. And before we dig into those, I want you to notice the overview of what happens here. Our third point today is that we, want, we need to discern the body. This is a phrase you may or may not have heard before. It's kind of an interesting phrase. It actually comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the context of communion. That God has given us the Lord's Supper communion to help us discern the body. And that means to tell who is and who isn't a member of the body of Christ. Who's truly a believer and who isn't. And that's exactly what happens in this text. 
the Apostle Paul arrives and he finds some disciples and he asks them a crucial question. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Now, we don't talk in those terms very often, but by asking that question, what he's asking is this. Are you a true believer? Because after the ascension of Christ and the sending of the Spirit, everyone who believes in Christ receives the Holy Spirit. And so if they're truly members of the body of Christ, then they will have God's Spirit. Now, what we're going to notice is that they say, no, we don't even know what you're talking about in response. And Paul has the opportunity to share the gospel with them, and they trust in Christ, and then they're baptized, and then they do join the church. But it reminds us of how important it is that we know who is it among us that is truly born again, that has the Spirit of God. Why is that so important? Because as we discern the body of Christ, we know who it is that we're supposed to love who it is that we're supposed to warn, who it is that we're supposed to encourage and help along as we seek to disciple one another, who has the Spirit, and who therefore needs to be walking in repentance and faith in Christ. Now, notice how this unfolds. Once again, there's some travel that goes on here. Apollos has traveled to Corinth, and the Apostle Paul, now that Apollos has left, Apostle Paul travels from uh, Galatia and Phrygia, this area up here, and travels west to the coastal town of Ephesus. He's keeping his promise, as it were, Lord willing, to return to them and to instruct them. And this is where Apollos' interaction with Aquila and Priscilla had taken place. So they kind of just miss each other as they're traveling. Paul arrives there and he finds these disciples, as they're called in verse 19, probably referring to their following John the Baptist. He asks them if they receive the Holy Spirit in verse 2, and they say, we've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, they're either extremely confused, because even John the Baptist referred to the Holy Spirit, or what they mean is, we don't know what you're talking about receiving the Holy Spirit. It's hard to say exactly what they meant by this, but either they have very little instruction at all or they're just confused by what it means to receive the Holy Spirit. And so Paul begins to ask them more questions. Verse 3, into what then were you baptized? They said into John's baptism. Now that is a key question. Into what were you baptized? So we're going to come back to that and consider why that's such an important question for them. They say all they have so far is John's baptism. This actually sounds a whole lot like Apollos, doesn't it? Who had only been instructed as far as the baptism of John. So Paul explains in verse 4 what all this means. John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him that is on Christ Jesus. That's a great summary of John the Baptist's ministry. Repent of your sins and get ready to follow Jesus. Okay? Verse 5, but when they hear this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what was it that Paul shared that changed their thinking? I think they understood so little, they didn't realize that Jesus was the Messiah. And so the Apostle Paul says in verse 4, that is on Christ Jesus, everything changes and they're thinking, oh, he's the one We need to follow. Now, obviously, we're not told everything that Paul would have shared with them. 
going further into the gospel and what Christ did on the cross, or maybe they'd already heard of that. We don't know for sure. But the key here is the person of Jesus. They now understand, ah, he's the one we're to follow after. He's the one to whom John the Baptist pointed. And so, in verse 5, they're baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, a couple things to point out about this. Paul asks this question about into what they've been baptized because it's one of the most important questions you can think about in the Christian life. A person who is truly saved has been baptized in the Spirit. Scriptures teach about this. John the Baptist even taught about it. He said uh, to his followers, I baptize you with water, this baptism of repentance, turn from your sins and follow Jesus, but there is coming one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now you know the word baptize means to immerse, to dip, to dunk, right? (laughs) We could just call it a dunking, I suppose, but it's maybe a little lighthearted for what we're talking about here. It's to be immersed. So just like John immersed them in water to signify a change, turning from their sin, ready to follow Jesus, so too now there's coming one who would baptize them in the Spirit. And of course, this is exactly what Jesus purchased by His death and resurrection. That those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are immersed in the Spirit of God when they believe. It's one of the beautiful gifts of salvation. You could argue even the gift of salvation that guarantees our entrance into the family of God and our eternal life. John 3, in fact, talks about that. You remember what Jesus tells Nicodemus? You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And then how does he explain that being born again? He explains it by the presence of the Spirit. See, we must have new life in Christ by the entrance of God's Spirit, immersed fully in the Spirit. This is what it means to be a Christian. We don't talk in those terms very often because it's a lot easier to just say, are you saved? (laughs) Do you believe in Jesus? Good way to say it as well. But another way to say it is, have you been baptized in the Spirit? Did you trust in Christ and receive the Spirit of God? Now, there's something else really important that happens with the baptism of the Spirit. We're immersed in God's Spirit, which means we are united to Christ. Remember studying in the Gospel of John, how John taught his disciples about this, that it's actually better that Jesus would depart and he would send to them the Holy Spirit, who had been with them, but now would be in them. And he actually goes on into John chapter 17 and prays to the Father that they would be one with him by the Spirit who is in them. So the baptism of the Spirit actually unites us to Jesus Christ, one with him, one with God, part of God's family, united not only to Christ, but to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So What Paul is teaching them here is huge truth. And they only understood that it was just, well, we just need to be baptized with water, turn from our sin, and follow after Jesus. But Paul's saying, no, no, there's a far more important baptism. Are you baptized in the Spirit? Are you born again? Are you truly saved? Now, they do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are saved. And so, in verse 6, 
Uh, They receive the Holy Spirit, and I think there are only three times in the book of Acts when the baptism of the Spirit at salvation is accompanied with tongues. This is the last time it happens in the book of Acts. I think it's something that faded over time, was less and less necessary, and the reason it's here is to make obvious the change that had happened. There was confusion Many thought that they were already followers of Jesus Christ, but this is making it clear they weren't. They didn't fully understand. Now they're saved. Now they have the Spirit. And as we're told in Scripture, tongues are a sign to unbelieving Jews to help them understand what has taken place here. These disciples, these 12, have now received the Spirit. They're truly born again. It's exciting. So, Verse 7 summarizes for us, there are about 12 of them in all. One last thing that's really interesting here is that they are baptized in water. And this reminds us what Acts, the book of Acts, has taught consistently, that though what becomes important after John, after Jesus, what becomes important is our spirit baptism, there is still such a thing as water baptism. It doesn't save us doesn't save us, but what it does is it takes something that's invisible, spirit baptism, and it makes it visible, water baptism. And so, even though they had been baptized by John, they're actually baptized again. And what this teaches us is that their previous baptism, which had the wrong meaning, even though it was in water, it meant the wrong thing. They're baptized again in order to now publicly display, we are united to Christ. We're one with Him. We're identifying with Jesus by going down under the water and coming back up again like His death and resurrection. We will now walk in newness of life because we're identifying with Christ. And so, spirit baptism, which makes them members of the universal church, has a corollary, something that's visible, water baptism, which makes us members of the local church. And this is what we see practiced in the early church here. So this is really exciting stuff. These new believers, baptized in the Spirit, now members of the universal church, become members of their local church by declaring publicly their faith in Christ through water baptism. Cool stuff. So what we learn is that we participate in the growth of the body as we discern the body. How important it is that we know who is and who isn't a true member of the body of Christ. That's the important question of life. And we don't think of it often in terms of membership of the church. We think of it in terms of are you saved? Are you going to heaven or not? It's the same question. Just asked in different terms. Because if you're a member of the body of Christ, you're saved. You've been spirit baptized. If you've not been spirit-baptized, you're not saved. It's as simple as that. And so that question of what's your eternal destiny is the same question of asking, are you a member of the universal church? Are you a member of the body of Christ? This is so important for us as we get to know people and understand people to discern, are they a member of the body of Christ or not? Because it changes the way we approach one another. If they're not a member of the body of Christ, it means they're not saved, which means we need to come to them and say to them, the Lord Jesus has died for your sins. Trust in him for salvation. If they are a member of the universal church, the body of Christ, by faith in the Lord Jesus, then we approach them differently. We know they have God's spirit. So for instance, 
as a local church. We have a covenant that helps us to love one another. We hold each other to this covenant. Why? Because by our baptism, by our profession of faith, we're saying to one another, yes, I've trusted in Jesus as Savior, so you are welcome to hold me accountable to walk in the Spirit. Right? If I've trusted in Jesus, then I have God's Spirit. And the church is intended to hold each other accountable to that. That means it's our jobs. If we see our brothers and sisters in Christ not walking in the Spirit, evidencing the fruit of the flesh rather than the fruit of the Spirit, it's our job to bring them back, to restore them. That's the biblical word, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. To restore them to a place of fellowship with the body of Christ and with the Lord Jesus Christ. We hold each other to that. And that's why it matters that we know who is and who isn't a member of the universal church. Who is saved and who isn't. As an application, I do need to ask you today, are you a member of the universal church? Or another way I could put that, are you saved? Sometimes we look at a question like that and we think to ourselves, well, yeah, I grew up in the church. I've always known about God. I've always attended, and sure, there were some times maybe where I drifted, but I came back, and I mean, it's just, it's just always been a part of my life. But that's not what makes a person a member of the church. It's by faith in the substitutionary death and saving resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we trust in Him for salvation, that's what makes us a member of the universal church, the body of Christ. And having done that, it follows then that we would become members of a visible church, a local church, where we can live out our membership in the body of Christ. Spirit baptism is connected with universal church membership just as water baptism is connected with local church membership. As we see in this text, it allows us to live out our Christianity in community, It's often been said it takes a village to raise a child. I think more accurately, it takes a church. God's given us community for a reason, hasn't He? That in fellowship with one another, we would help one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so knowing who is and who isn't truly saved, knowing who is and who isn't a member of the universal church is helpful. And baptism, the Lord's Supper, and membership in the local church help to make visible what would otherwise be invisible, discerning the body. As application to this point, I just encourage you to know one another. As you get to know one another and live out your relationship as the family of God, I encourage you to begin with the question, how did you come to know the Lord as Savior? Even if you think, I might have heard it before, ask again. Share your gospel story, how you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Begin with that fellowship that you have with one another, and then grow your connection and discipleship from there. God has given us a beautiful family here in the church. It's ours to discern and to guard and to protect and to disciple and to grow. We come finally to verses 8 through 10, and there's just a few things to mention here. What we're going to see in this fourth and final point is that we can deliver the word of the Lord. 
The text on the screen there is wrong. is verses 8 through 10 where we're going to see this. Verses 8 through 10. And we deliver the word of the Lord. As we do that, we participate in the growth of the church. And this is something all of us can do. We have the scriptures written down to be able to deliver it to one another. This is what Paul does in verses 8 through 10. He goes to the synagogue and speaks boldly there in Ephesus for three months, reasoning, persuading concerning the the things of the kingdom of God, preaching the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that to enter into the kingdom which will come someday, a person must be born again. This is basically John 3, preached out here to the Apostle Paul, preaching that one day the kingdom will come. And we must be born again to enter that kingdom. But, verse 9, some were hardened, resisted Paul's teaching, spoke evil of the way. That's a short term for the Christians, the believers, the church. So Paul departs from them, withdraws the disciples, and begins reasoning in the school of Tyrannus. He just finds another meeting place where he can preach. The the rejection doesn't change his method. The rejection doesn't change his tactics. He keeps preaching the gospel. He just goes nearby to another gathering place where he can teach. For two years, verse 10 tells us, he continues to preach so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. From Ephesus, Asia was that western part of what we would call Turkey now. The the gospel just goes out from there as Paul faithfully teaches and teaches and teaches, continuing to deliver the word of the Lord, continuing to share the message of the crucified and risen Savior. We participate in the growth of the church as we deliver the word. Now that doesn't only mean preaching. There's so many ways that you and I can share the word, can deliver the word to people. I look back on my own life and those who delivered the word to me faithfully through the years. Since it's Mother's Day, I'll just mention a few of the women who mothered me spiritually through my life. Of course, my mom was a believer and she taught me the word. But in our church, in our equip classes, as we would call them, Ellie Anderson taught me faithfully as a little two and three year old. Sue Hickey was the one who was teaching Sunday school when I came to know Christ as Savior. Don Niedermeyer taught me after that. Valerie Wilson into my awkward junior and junior high years. Daria Greening, Cormay Dillon, many others who poured into my life, delivered the Word of God. How precious is the family of God where you and I have the privilege of delivering the Scriptures to one another, that the Word of the Lord would not only thrive here in our body, but go out from our church. Imagine if the summary of our church here in Grimes could be like verse 10, that as the Word was delivered here, it spread to all of Grimes, and beyond Grimes to the surrounding neighborhoods, all of northwest Des Moines. In fact, all of Des Moines, right? And we can just go on from there. Why? Because as the word is spread, the church thrives. This is how God grows his church. It's how we participate, delivering the word to one another. Practically, I encourage you to do a couple things. In the life of our church, we've designed a few ministries to give you the opportunity to regularly deliver the word to one another. 
One of them is our equip classes, where you can sit and hear teaching of God's Word, but be given opportunities to discuss and talk and share, or to be a teacher, where you can teach the children or others in our church the Word of God. Our growth groups are designed with this in mind, that after hearing a Sunday sermon, we would gather in small groups and continue to speak truth in love, to talk about the Word, deliver it into each other's lives, and understand how the Lord wants us to live. Discipleship, that we would sit down one-on-one or maybe groups of three or, or whatever size it ends up being, open the Word together and read it and talk and share. There's a reason we have discipleship libraries in our foyer to give resources so that you can sit down with one another in the congregation, open the word, maybe with a resource as help, and deliver the word to one another. Grow in your understanding of God's word. This is how we participate in the growth of the church. So friends, God has equipped us to grow his church. He's given us his spirit. He's given us His Word filled with instructions to understand how He wants us to live. By giving us His Spirit, He's allowed us the power to devote ourselves to His will, to say no to me and yes to Him. He's given us a family in the body of Christ. He's made us, we who have trusted in Christ, each to be members with particular gifts and skills and abilities so that we can participate in the life of the body and help it grow up into Christ to whom we've been united by the baptism of the Spirit. Praise God for what He's done in the church. What next step does He want you to take in the life of His church? As you think about being devoted to His will, living the way He wants you to live in the church, what is that next step for you? I could list off all the things we've talked about today. So many ways, so many steps we could take. But the question is, what's your next step to participate in the life of the church? Maybe for you today, it's to join the universal church by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. That is the greatest choice you could make today, to have your sins washed away, receive the righteousness of God, and to be baptized in the Spirit. I'd love to talk to you more about that after our service if you have questions. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for what you have done by your Spirit through your Son. We praise you for creating the church for calling out, separating unto yourself a people who have been cleansed of their sins and given your spirit. May we be faithful to follow your will, to be devoted to you and what you have for us. May we be faithful to disciple one another in gospel truth, to truly understand the message of the gospel, to grow in that message that our love for you would grow, people would come to Christ as Savior as they hear the gospel. Help us to be faithful to discern the body, to know who is and who isn't a believer in Jesus so that we can help one another appropriately, sharing the gospel, calling each other to repentance so that we would all walk in the Spirit and be pleasing to you. Help us to deliver the Word, to be a people who are Word-centered, and may we all accurately teach the things of the Lord Jesus Christ being 
mighty in the scriptures. We ask for your help and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.